0: Originally, gender dysphoria was gender identity disorder, and this was changed in 2013, essentially just to get rid of the word disorder.
1: It's not something that you choose. You feel the way that you feel, and that's just kind of how it is. You know, gender dysphoria can be, like, the reason of, like, why I'm struggling, and we just need to look at is okay, how can I help you then from there? Not, oh, I need to fix you because something's wrong with you.
2: Welcome to This Way Out, the international LGBT radio magazine. I'm Greg Gordon. Our news rap crew got time off for the U.S. Thanksgiving holiday, but they'll return next week.
0: Everyone thinks that I'm a freak, the way I dress, the way I speak. I'm too thin, I hate my voice. I'd switch lives if I had the choice. I'll be tall and rich someday. Everything will go my way. Someday, someday.
2: On this week's special show, two transgender college students get real about gender dysphoria and trans identity. It's an in-depth, insightful, and sometimes very personal conversation.
0: This is Outcasting Overtime from Media for the Public Good, producer of Public Radio's LGBTQ youth programs. Hi, I'm Andrew, an Outcasting Youth participant. On this edition, outcaster Casper and I are going to discuss gender dysphoria and whether it should be considered a mental illness. Hi, Casper.
1: Hi. How are you today?
0: I'm good. How are you? I'm good. So I want to start off with introducing what the DSM is because gender dysphoria is defined in the DSM. So the DSM stands for Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and it's basically the clinical authority on anything relating to mental disorders usually for criteria for diagnosis. So if a psychiatrist or another mental health professional wants to diagnose a mental disorder or a mental illness, the DSM is where they figure out how to do that.
1: Yeah. So uh, in specific regards to gender dysphoria, the DSM-5 states that at least two of the following criteria for gender dysphoria must be experienced um, in adolescents or adults for a diagnosis. So from this list of about seven things, I'm just going to pick two of them out, So a strong desire to be of a gender other than one's assigned gender at birth, and a strong desire to be rid of one's sexual characteristics due to incongruence with one's experienced or expressed gender. So just another definition of gender dysphoria is a conflict between a person's physical or assigned gender and the gender with which he, she, or they identify. People with gender dysphoria might be very uncomfortable with the gender they were assigned at birth. It could be their body or um, expected roles of their assigned gender.
0: So some examples of this might be, for example, how someone sees themselves in pictures or in the mirror. Um, So they may feel that they look too feminine or too masculine. Um, It can result in being uncomfortable with one's body. So it has to do with how someone relates to their own body in terms of their primary and secondary sex characteristics and generally how they look. And it also can affect someone socially. So there can also be a form of social dysphoria, which is basically how someone relates to other people in terms of their gender and how other people perceive your gender. So this is where, for example, pronouns and names come in with trans people.
1: Yeah. It's especially important with pronouns to make sure that um, if you're going to ask someone what their pronouns are, you should do it in a private setting because not everyone is going to be open about their gender or gender identity. And there might be situations where you'll have to use a certain set of pronouns in a situation outside of someone's house, but then inside their house with family members or people that they're close to, you might have to use um, a different set of pronouns. Mm -hmm.
0: And so just for defining gender dysphoria, it's worth noting that this term is used both in clinical and colloquial settings. So even though it's sort of defined officially, it's also often used, you know, in conversation by trans people just talking about how gender dysphoria affects their life. And it means the exact same thing in both contexts, Um, but it's important to recognize that it's not just a clinical term. Originally in the DSM, gender dysphoria was gender identity disorder, and this was changed in 2013 when the DSM-5 came out, which is the most recent version. Um, And this was essentially just to get rid of the word disorder um, and get rid of sort of the stigma that came along with it and the idea that might cause trans people to be perceived as sick or something like that.
1: For a practical standpoint, the positive uses of having gender dysphoria in the DSM, uh, it's good for insurance billing, so it can provide diagnosis to insurance companies and doctors in some cases that transition-related care is medically necessary. So if someone wants to get um, hormones or top surgery, bottom surgery, or anything that could affirm their gender identity, that would be a really good reason to have it.
0: And this is actually pretty standard procedure, as most trans people who have gone through any sort of medical transition are familiar with. Often, in order to get hormones or especially surgery, you usually need some referral letters from medical doctors and or therapists. And that almost always involves a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. A lot of doctors require this as well, but it is especially important for insurance, because it's important to remember that a lot of surgeries in particular that are transition-related have historically been categorized as cosmetic because, you know, the primary function is to change how your body looks. And so it's important to have that backing from a medical professional and from, you know, a widely recognized and respected clinical authority, the DSM, saying that this quote-unquote clinical procedure is actually medically necessary and therefore insurance could cover it. So if your insurance covers transition-related surgeries or in many cases also hormones, um, a diagnosis is often required.
1: Even sometimes with um, surgeries and hormones, because I've had personally in my experience issues with it, um, deeming it medically necessary is the other term. A lot of insurance companies sometimes have issues with it being medically necessary or, um, you know, otherwise considering cosmetic because it does, you know, cost a fair amount of money and a lot of the times you have to jump through several hoops to make things work. So uh, for me personally, I had to go through um, an appeal request through my insurance, even though it's listed in my policy, that... As long as I had a certain amount of requirements, which was being over the age of 18 to consent to the surgery, having a couple letters from some medical professionals and being diagnosed with gender dysphoria, they still declined uh, my initial request for the surgery. And I essentially had to, I'd say, quote unquote, prove that I was serious enough to be able to get the surgery.
0: Mm -hmm. And so given how hard it is for a lot of trans people to get access to these procedures, it's especially important to have, you know, as many things as you can to kind of provide legitimacy to your claim that it's necessary um, and I have heard some arguments that gender dysphoria should be taken out of the DSM because it shouldn't be, you know, some people argue that, that you know, can, that, that constitutes considering it too much of an illness or, you know, could potentially bring too much stigma or that it's outdated. But I think a lot of the people who argue that overlook the practical use. And I think the primary purpose, especially at this point, since they've changed it from being classified as a, you know, since being labeled as a disorder, the primary purpose is really just practical. It's to help trans people get the medical care that they need and to justify that transition is legitimate medical treatment.
1: Yeah, because a lot of people don't believe that it can be like a valid thing and it has a lot of negative stigma. I know um, some parents or, um, you know, family members, if you are a younger person that is trans and wants to start hormones or get a surgery, a lot of people fear that it's a negative thing and it, you can get, um, then you know, considered hormones or steroids, so you can get like addicted to them or you'll die sooner than you should. Uh, things like that, which uh, isn't true a lot of the time. And a lot of that information is very old and outdated. And a lot of the more current information is very sparse because uh, it's hard to really research like what is connected to being trans. Some people think it could be like mentality wise, it could be hormone wise, like actual hormones you have in your body, chromosomes, things like that. So It's sad to say, but the research is very limited.
0: So beyond the practical question of, you know, the actual uses of having gender dysphoria in the DSM, I think that also brings us to a somewhat more interesting question from a philosophical standpoint is, you know, whether it makes sense on a conceptual level to consider gender dysphoria a mental illness. And to some degree, this is just a question of language, you know, so how do you define what an illness is or what a disorder is? But this can also be important. So you want to balance between avoiding the stigma of being considered an other and of having an illness um, or the idea that, you know, historically has been common that, you know, being trans or, you know, also being gay needs to be fixed. um, You want to avoid all that. But at the same time, it's important to recognize sort of the legitimacy of what gender dysphoria is and how it affects people's lives.
1: Yeah, especially for gender dysphoria, it's more of a self-defined thing. Treatment is defined on what the individual wants or feels that they need, not necessarily by a doctor. So, for example, some trans people choose not to transition medically or surgically at all. Every trans person wants or needs something that's best suited to them. And you don't have to transition in any capacity to be a valid trans person, meaning you don't have to look or behave in ways associated with binary genders to be respected or accepted. Not all trans men have to go on testosterone and get a double mastectomy or phalloplasty to be considered men. Not all trans women need to go on estrogen and get a breast augmentation or vaginoplasty to be considered women. And not all gender expansive people have to look completely androgynous, start hormones, or get top or bottom surgery to be considered gender expansive. Mm
0: -hmm. And a lot of this difference in the way that people treat gender dysphoria also just results in... A difference in how people experience it and also the fact that more so than most mental illnesses it's very personally defined you know no one really goes into a doctor's office and the doctor you know makes you fill out a questionnaire and then is like surprise you have gender dysphoria (laughs) and you're like really didn't know that you know it usually tends to be more patient driven in the sense that a patient who identifies as trans will come in see a therapist or a psychiatrist who will then sort of back up their desire to to, you know, have some sort of medical transition, which in most cases is what will warrant a diagnosis and sort of sign off on that. So it's in that way, it's definitely a little bit different from most mental illnesses. And I think that's also part of why most trans people don't necessarily consider themselves to have a mental illness just for being trans, which makes sense, you know, because it. There are definitely a lot of differences.
1: And also dysphoria is not going to spring up on you like the flu. You're not just going to get it sometimes <laughs> and then it'll go away for six months until you get it again. It's something that you for most people you live with pretty much every day of your life. Mm-hmm. And especially um, with dysphoria, it can heavily impact you in a negative way. In some ways, having bad posture, self-inflicted physical harm, desire to be less social, etc. And transition can help curb that for a lot of people. So I know for uh, me specifically, before I got top surgery and I started hormones, I had a really bad tendency to over-slouch. I would wear very baggy clothes, and I didn't want anyone to see that I had any kind of prominent chest. So I would really, like, almost curl up into a ball, and it's given me really bad posture. I was also binding for... 12 hours a day for about 3 years of my life, Um, so binding pretty much is where you have this kind of like compression vest that you put over you and it um, flattens your chest to make it look more masculine, and it's something that there are safer ways to do it, but overall is not a safe practice and it can really damage your body to the point where uh, ribs can get bruised or even broken if you bind for too long or in more unsafe ways, such as ace bandages. Um, I know for me personally, I had a binder, but it did really get to a point where my back got really messed up, and it's very hard for me to exercise even after the fact because I was constricted pretty much twelve hours every single day for seven days a week, three years going
0: mm-hmm. as someone who also binds very regularly um and I have not yet had top surgery, although i'm I'm working on the process, I just had a couple of consults um but I'm kind of still in that in that process of constantly binding, and I think that definitely speaks to just how much being trans can really affect your health, including your physical health, you know? So it just affects sort of your flexibility in your life. And I'm always trying to have to weigh my options between like, how much longer (laughs) can I keep this binder on without like making my back and my shoulders really hurt for the next week, you know, where I know I'm not supposed to wear it more than eight hours a day technically, but that's just not realistic. And so how am I supposed to balance that with going out and doing things that I want to do? And sometimes I have to just not do something because I'm like, I need to just sit at home and take my binder off. It's just this like, constant thing that you're having to worry about. And for that reason, I am very excited to hopefully soon be in the position that you are of not having to bind anymore.
1: Yeah, a lot of things that people don't understand with binding and being trans, especially for trans men or masculine identifying people, you really have to reconsider kind of the most basic things. Okay, well, is this shirt going to fit me if I take my binder off? Is it going to show my binder if it's a more like transparent material? Or even things like exercise, like i Personally, I do karate, and thankfully our uniforms are all unisex, like every single uniform looks the same, and they're very loose-fitting and baggy, so I was able to be able to wear a bra, and I didn't need to have my binder on, which it's very dangerous to bind and exercise. So thankfully with that, I was still able to keep active and, like, participate in a sport that I've been doing for the past eight years, but other sports that have, like, tighter uniforms or are more constricting – kind of brings up an issue where it's like, okay, do I value my comfort more or do I value my enjoyment of a certain activity? And especially if you feel like you're not presenting a certain way that can make certain activities feel less enjoyable because you see like how you look on the outside to other people and they might misconstrue like how you see yourself and how they see you. The more positive effects of transition, if people choose to get surgery or be on hormones, it can help with the need to hide oneself, slouching, binding and tucking for numerous hours every day of the week. And in more social situations, it gives trans people more confidence to go out and feel more comfortable while doing so. For example, being able to go to the beach without a shirt, uh, being able to go to the gym without binding or tucking, or being able to wear clothes that fit your body and gender identity, so wearing dresses, skirts, suits, etc.,
0: from a hormones perspective, it definitely can help socially in terms of the way that people perceive you. I definitely think for me, one of the best effects of starting hormones has been my voice getting lower. And I think that definitely helps in a lot of cases with, you know, people actually perceiving you as the proper gender, but also, you know, as just being more comfortable in social situations and in speaking. It's such a basic thing. And, a lot of trans people just get so used to being so uncomfortable in the most basic aspects of daily life as a result of all of these, you know, pieces of their gender dysphoria constantly flying at them. Um, yeah. And it's it's always really great to finally kind of get rid of one of those things and check that one off the list, and finally it's not really bothering me so much anymore.
1: Yeah, you would never consider going out in public and someone saying to you, oh, sir, and then the little rush of enjoyment you get like yes i've like i'm I'm perceived the way that i want to be perceived and you know all you are is standing in the middle of a grocery store looking for some soup or something and you're like oh sir can i help you with something like no i'm okay thanks but in your mind you're like throwing a party (laughs) this outcasting overtime on this way out special
2: discussion about gender dysphoria and trans identity will continue in a moment after this important message Giving Tuesday is
1: only the beginning. The next thing you hear... Parts of the revised civil code governing heterosexual-only marriage are expected to become law in 2020. PAN hopes
2: last year's overturning of a similar statute by India's high court is a good omen.
0: Panama's president indicated that he and the panel working on the draft would be open to changes. An
1: online petition demanding that the Chick-fil-A at the Avimor Resort be shuttered is also gathering steam. The crime bill is expected to come before the Cook Islands Parliament for its final reading in February next year. Speaking with LGBT activists mm-hmm. and scientists
0: it's not completely clear from these late-breaking reports.
2: I am the chosen one. What will be the next thing you hear? Find out all this month at thiswayout.org. Andrew and Casper make the connections between gender dysphoria and mental illness as the special outcasting overtime on This Way Out conversation continues.
0: There are a lot of trans people who have you know, other mental disorders like anxiety or depression, um, and that tends to kind of interact with gender dysphoria.
1: Definitely. So in terms of anxiety, especially for trans people, uh, using public transportation or facilities like bathrooms and dressing rooms can be particularly stressful. Being in open spaces, standing in line or being in a crowd, and discomfort about being humiliated, rejected, or looked down on in social interactions is very, very common. And then in terms of depression, a lot of the common things that trans people experience are thoughts of death or suicide, feeling worthless, loss of interest in pleasure and activities, trouble sleeping or sleeping too much, and a loss of energy or increased fatigue. Um, This can be accounted for a couple different things. It could be if they're not, you know, in a place where they can transition, if that's what they're choosing to do, if people aren't respecting them or their pronouns, or if they're just having general issues about, like, how they're being perceived uh, in social interactions can cause a lot of these problems. Mm
0: -hmm. And it's interesting, too, sometimes it can almost sometimes be hard to really draw the line between you know, where symptoms are independent disorders like anxiety or depression, and where these symptoms actually just result from gender dysphoria. Like some of the things that Casper and I were talking about earlier, how gender dysphoria can really just get in the way of your life in a lot of ways. Um, and that can get in the way of, for example, your daily activities, which, you know, in some ways can be a symptom of depression if you're losing interest in them, or it can no longer really continue them in the way that you used to or no longer enjoy them because you're distracted by your gender dysphoria. So that Maybe, you know, one example of kind of an overlapping symptom where it might be hard to tell, you know, what the ultimate cause is or what the real sort of diagnosis is or reason for that symptom.
1: Yeah, especially when you're in public settings as well, because uh, being Andrew and I being younger uh, people of the trans community, we are in situations where we do have to be social relatively frequently. Um, Me personally, I'm in my third year of college and Andrew is in his first. And that's a very like social outlet where there will be, you know, parties and events and things like that. And being trans and not feeling comfortable with yourself in certain aspects can really hinder that and limit you from going out and enjoying yourself in ways that other people can.
0: Yeah, for me, I can definitely vouch that, you know, starting college this year, I'm really happy that I've gotten a number of like basic transitional things done before I've started. Like I just, you know, went through my whole legal name change process this summer. I've, you know, I started hormones in the past year. So I'm, and it's definitely just a relief to have a lot of those things done before going off to sort of like a new chapter in my life, I guess, where I'm going to, you know, be trying to have new experiences and meet new people, and to not have to be weighed down by a lot of those things is gonna be really great and i I almost can't <laughs> imagine like what it would be like to have to go to college and still be dealing with all of those things. It would just it it would just be so much worse.
1: That was my experience. When I first went into my freshman year of college, I had that experience where I was lucky enough that my college has a preferred name policy where you are allowed to put a preferred name in and it'll show up on your attendance and your email. So pretty much teachers would know that my preferred name was Casper and it would also show up on my email. Um, Everything, it wasn't, you know, Uh, aligned with was only in legal terms but that was only things that bills that I and my parents had seen but pretty much I hadn't started hormones yet and I was pretty much miserable all the time because I hadn't made those steps yet and I was fighting with you know several different things I was fighting with my parents about getting my name changed and starting hormones and everything like that but around my sophomore year is when I finally kind of got everything together and now Thankfully, uh, everything in college is fine and I'm in a very accepting community. But in the very beginning, it was very stressful and hard because I wasn't living at home for the first time. You know, I was on my own and I had to figure out things for myself. And I was living in a suite with seven uh, cis women, which was not easy being a trans guy. Even though they were supportive, it still caused a lot of issues because how I was seen um, from an outside perspective by other people wasn't always aligned with how I identify.
0: hmm. So, you know, given all of these different ways that gender dysphoria can affect someone's life and just, you know, make make someone's life so much harder for them from a mental health perspective, this might be kind of a debated opinion, but I think it kind of makes sense on a basic definitional level to call gender dysphoria a mental illness or a disorder in some ways, you know if if you just look at it from the simple perspective of it's a problem that negatively affects someone's mental health and it requires treatment. Um, and to some degree, it's, you know, a difference in the way that we trans people sort of think or see the world, you know, when you think about how hard it is for a lot of cisgender people to understand, like, what leads someone to be trans and what it's like and what would cause you to, like, think in that way or question gender in that way. You know, there's just such a difference in the way that, we think about ourselves than that other people do from a definitional standpoint it almost makes sense to call it a mental illness
1: yeah i would agree i know for you know experiences that i've had uh, being trans and with other trans people is that you have to unlearn a lot of things Uh, gender stereotypes how you perceive gender the concept of gender and sex alternatively is Mm -hmm. a very confusing thing but at the same time it's really expanded my mind and like how I view things, because, you know, we are one of uh, the very few cultures that only recognizes two genders. There are multiple other cultures that have recognized three, five, or even nine separate genders. And, you know, it's a very normal and ingrained part of their, you know, their culture and their community. And we are, you know, sadly not a place that has gotten to that point. But I feel like if we could in the future, that would be, you know, a great thing to have because you know you don't really actively choose to you know be a trans person it's something that you have to live with and you know how you choose to tackle it um, really depends on how other people are going to treat you as well because we live in a society that's very ingrained with you know working together being part of a community and part of a workforce and you know if you're in a situation where you're going to school you know you're in a very, like, community-based learning group. And the way you are treated is very important because if you're treated really badly and people don't respect you, you're obviously not going to get any kind of pleasure or enjoyment out of doing things that you need to survive, essentially, especially as an adult.
0: Mm-hmm. And and I definitely understand to some degree why when you, you know, when you say, you know, that it might make sense to call gender dysphoria mental illness, that might kind of throw a lot of people off, especially at, at first here, I think, or at, at first listen, they might, they might, not expect that to be what a trans person would say, <laughs> yeah, um, you know, and to some degree that makes sense because historically we've had things like conversion therapy for both gay and trans people um and because of that, both gay and trans people have had to fight really hard to get themselves recognized as not having a mental illness um but the problem there was that it was a- me- it was considered a mental illness in the sense that the treatment was to make you stop thinking that way. But I don't know if the same really applies if you are very, very clear that the treatment is acceptance and transition.
1: Yeah, definitely. I know uh, even like one that like you had said, they did consider conversion therapy and it's still in a lot of places uh, is uh, highly considered as like a treatment. It's about how we view the treatment. So it's trying to correct something that's wrong or it's trying to help someone that just needs some, you know, some more help. It's like if you have any kind of other you know, issue or, you know, something that's preventing you from, like, functioning, there are always, like, other ways, you know, for people that have, you know, alcohol problems, you know, there's AA and, you know, support groups and things like that. It's kind of the same thing. Like, what we need is support and we have, like, a reason for it. You know, gender dysphoria can be, like, the reason of, like, why I'm struggling and we just need to look at it as, okay, how can I help you then from there? Not, Mm -hmm. oh, I need to fix you because something's wrong with you.
0: Mm -hmm. And especially in a world that I think is moving towards sort of normalizing the idea of mental illness or even just generally like thinking in a way that's different from other people. It's sort of, it's coming to, you know, not in all, not in all contexts, but in some contexts, you know, mental illness is coming to be viewed more as, you know, a difference in the way that people think that result, you know, that's more about a struggle for them and less about them being some sort of other or some sort of, you know, sick thing. Yeah. Um, you know, it's coming to be respected a little bit more, and I think it's really only in that context that I'm I'm comfortable saying okay, maybe gender dysphoria is a mental illness. And it's it's, you know, it's not the kind of thing where I'm going to go around picketing like gender dysphoria is a <laughs> mental illness. Recognize it as that. You know, it's not it's not really the kind of thing that I think needs to be said in the sense that it's going to like you know, from an activism perspective, really advance the cause of trans people. But at the same time, I think it is important to recognize, like, you know, just the really large degree to which gender dysphoria impacts people's life and their mental health, um, and I think this is a way of emphasizing that.
1: Yeah, you can use, I guess, uh, I guess the best way to word it would be you can use mental illness kind of as like a, a loose term almost. Like, mm-hmm. it's not this concrete definition, like there's something wrong with you. You need to fix it. It's like, okay, this is something that's causing me distress and like, I just need help getting through it. And it's also like, it's not a thing that's caused by outside influencer exposure where, you know, some people are like, oh, if you expose my children to like homosexual couples, um, you know, it that's going to make them gay. Like, it's not like I grew up seeing heterosexual couples, and I'm I'm a queer person, and I'm also trans. And, you know, it's not something that you choose. You feel the way that you feel, and that's just kind of how it is. And it's not something that can be brushed off, either. It is, like, a very serious issue in a lot of cases that affects many people, and it can lead to suicide and even murder. Um, in America, trans women of color have a life expectancy of 35 years of age, while their other cisgender counterparts is around 78, and that's from uh, Glad. And, you know, that's a statistic they did in 2018, which is, you know, only a year ago. It's very recent. So having things like that, people really need to see that it's a very serious and prevalent issue. It's not something that you could just be like, "Mm, you know, it's not a big deal. Just deal with it. It's, you know, our lives, essentially, you know, our safety and well-being and comfort in a lot of situations can lead to, you know, very sad and deadly outcomes.
0: All right. This has been a great conversation. Thanks, Casper. Thanks for having me. And thanks for listening to Outcasting Overtime. Outcasting Overtime is a production of Media for the Public Good, a nonprofit organization that produces public radio's LGBTQ youth programs. Our executive producer is Mark Sophus. Visit us at outcastingmedia.org to get information about outcasting, watch outcasting videos, access our social media links, and listen to Outcasting and Outcasting Overtime. Thanks, and thanks for listening.
2: Thanks for choosing This Way Out, brought to you by the Nonprofit Overnight Productions. Our thanks to Andrew and Casper and Outcasting Overtime producer Mark Sophus for that informative and engaging discussion. David Brown sang Teen Freak, and Kim Wilson composed and performed our theme music. This way out thanks to Kicking Assets Fund of the Tides Foundation, the Yavanna Foundation, the estate of Christopher David Trenton, Richard Merck and Brad Payton of Silicon Valley, and all of the listener donors who make this program possible. Look for This Way Out Radio on social media, email tworadio at aol.com, or write to us at PO Box 1065, Los Angeles, California, 90078USA. For Associate Producer Lucia Chappelle and everyone at This Way Out, I'm Greg Gordon. We thank you for listening online at thiswayout.org and on HCCC, Alice Springs, Northern Territory, WOZOLP, Knoxville, Tennessee, CKDU, Halifax, Nova Scotia, and a wide array of community radio stations and other outlets around the world, including this one. Stay tuned! This is WJFF Jeffersonville and W233AH Monticello. You were just listening to This Way Out. Support for that is brought to you by our listeners. The time now is 3.59. The temperature in the WJFF listening area is 36 degrees with overcast skies. This afternoon we have a 20% chance of rain with a high of 40 and tonight mostly cloudy skies with a low of 22. Tomorrow, Saturday during the day, partly sunny skies, a high of 29. And Saturday night, starting a mostly clear skies, going into patchy freezing, fog, patchy freezing fog later on with a low of 13. Up next, we have All Things Considered. Then at 6, we're going over to fresh air with Terry Gross. But now, All Things Considered. Support comes from Liza Phillips Design, sustainably sourced natural fiber rugs for floors and stairs. Designed in Narrowsburg, handmade in Nepal. By appointment and on the web at lizaphillipsdesign.com. Support comes from listeners and from Nature's Grace Health Foods and Deli on Main Street in Honesdale, Pennsylvania. Strengthening lives.